Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to 2024. That's right, Invasion of the Potty People has survived to yet another year with all fabulous chat on different genre films and latest film news. So, as excited as I am, let's run over who we've got. So, I am Russell. I have always will be wrangling this podcast into shape. We also have Vincent. Vincent, who are you? Now, I am become Oscar, the conveyor of acclaim. And a happy January to all. And there's a hint about some of the things we may be talking, we'll be talking about in the very near future. And then we've also got James. James, who are you? I am just a humble podcaster and I just have to ask our listeners, tell me, do you listen to podcasts? You will. And another hint of what we're discussing this month. So this month we are going to cover the Oscars. We're going to cover one of the big Oscar contenders in a review. And then we will mourn the loss of a great, truly great cinematic universe, one we all adore and have great appreciation for. That's right, the DCEU. Uh, gone before its time. Long may it live in our hearts. But first up, oh, the Oscars are here. The Oscars have come round. It's awards season. We've got the nominations and... Oh, there's some chatter around them, isn't there, Vincent? Run us through the Oscars and why there's been a lot of talk about this already. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Yes, indeed. It's a wonderful night for Oscar nominations chat and Oscar discourse controversy. And let's face it, a fair bit of uninformed nonsense. So the nominations for the 96th Annual Academy Awards were announced on the 23rd of January. The nominees include some usual suspects, as well as some surprises, and there have been some predictable reactions. Starting with some of the unsurprising picks, uh, leading the nominations is at the Potty People's top film of last year, Oppenheimer, which has 13 nominations. This is closely followed by the Another favourite from uh, 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 The Body People, Poor Things, which has 11 nominations. Following up that, there's Killers of the Flower Moon, another favourite, <laughs> with 10 nominations. And, oh, another favourite, eight for Barbie. So, from the looks of it, the Academy voters are somewhat in line with The Potty People. Uh, I feel our influence is very much in evidence here. Where they go, we lead... Now, maybe they can sponsor this damn podcast. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? We will take your money. We will take their money. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, you know, maybe we'd uh, we'd even get to do some sort of uh, live commentary. Do you know, in all seriousness, guys, if there is, if I have in my list of things I would most absolutely adore to do, one of them is attend the Academy Awards. Now, there are ways for civilians, as it were, to do that. Um, if you sort of work for the right organisation, like ampas academy of motion picture arts and sciences then some of their staff are brought in as seat fillers because the dolby theater should not look as dolby sorry kodak theater should not look um empty so when the nominees the proper guests go up to have their you know to go to the loo or something then there are seat fillers and if i could be a seat filler that would be amazing <laughs> i'm not holding my breath but it would be very very exciting anyway enough about me Thus, we can see a lot of the uh, nominees who have, you know, attracted a lot of attention. 
As always, of course, much of the discussion involves those who have not been nominated. Those are the omissions. And among the omissions, probably the most discussed are Greta Gerwig, who has been overlooked for achievement in directing, and Margot Robbie, who has been overlooked for lead actress. Now, here's the interesting thing. There's been... it's only in the last two, two days since the nominees were announced, there's been a lot of online chatter about these, The not least from the disappointed and indeed nominated Ryan Gosling, uh, lamenting the failure of the Academy uh, to nominate Gerwig and Robbie in those categories. But what this discourse has largely overlooked is that both Gerwig and Robbie are nominated because they are both producers of Barbie. And let's not forget that it is the producers who get the award for Best Picture. So even though they are not nominated in those specific categories, come Oscar night, it's entirely possible that Gerwig, Robbie, and among others, will be stroking golden baldies. Furthermore, Gerwig is nominated for writing, as she and Noah Baumbach are nominated for Barbie in the adapted screenplay category. And it's worth noting that in recent years, screenplay has been linked with best direct with best picture as much as directing. Now, having said that, there is a, a wider demographic disappointment associated with Gerwig's non-directing nomination, which is that there is only one woman nominated in the category of director. The nominees for directing are Jonathan Glazer for The Zone of Interest, Yorgos Lantimos for Poor Things, Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer, and Martin Scorsese, Martin Scorsese for Killers of the Flower Moon, and Justine Trieste for Anatomy of a Fall. Thus, though the nominees in that category. Uh, the, the number of women who have been nominated for directing is still way too small. It's great that Justine Triest is in there. And in that respect, I will admit to certain disappointment that Gerwig hasn't been uh, nominated for the demographics perspective. Furthermore, something which has also been overlooked in the discussion around the those who have and who have not been nominated is the Oscars have, for a number of years been criticised for a lack of diversity, especially in the acting categories. Oscars So White, remember that campaign from several years ago. Notably, there are people of colour in every acting category this year. Looking through uh, lead actor, we have Bradley Cooper for Maestro, Coleman Domingo for Rustin, Paul Giamatti for The Holdovers, Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer, Jeffrey Wright for American Fiction. That's two people of colour in there. For lead actress, there's Annette Benning for Nyad, Sandra Huller for Anatomy of a Fool, Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon, Kerry Mulligan for Maestro, Emma Stone for Poor Things. Lily Gladstone is the first Native American performer nominated for, lead, for actress in a leading role. In the supporting actor categories, the supporting actor features Sterling K. Brown, um, for American Fiction, Robert De Niro for Killers of the Flower Moon, Robert Downey Jr. for Oppenheimer, Ryan Gosling for Barbie and Mark Ruffalo for Poor Things. So again, we have some uh, African-American representation there. And in Supporting Actress, we've got Emily Blunt for Oppenheimer, Daniel Brooks for The Colour Purple, America 
sorry, Danielle Brooks for The Colour Purple, America Ferreira for Barbie, Jodie Foster for Nyad, and Devine Joy Randall for The Holdovers. Now, not only do we have several people of colour in there, but America Ferreira is the first actor of Honduran descent nominated for Supporting Actress uh, to receive an acting nomination. Uh, so in that respect, we can see that there is quite a bit of diversity. So while it's important to draw attention to a lack of female director nominees, can we please pay some attention to the accomplishments of people who are not white? <sighs> and Carl. <laughs> to lighten things slightly, um, I'm especially happy with the nominees for Animated Feature, because it includes one of my surprise top films of last year, Nimona, as well as the very impressive The Boy and the Heron, um, another one beloved by ourselves, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is in there. For further discussion on Elemental, check out a future episode of Not Just for Kids, and Robot Dreams I cannot comment on because I have not seen it. And looking through a few of the rest of them, um, it's great to see a favourite of ours, Godzilla Minus One, up for visual effects. Looking over the Best Picture nominees, I have personally seen six of them. I have seen Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, Past Lives and Poor Things. Five of those we talked about in our last episode. And another one is coming. Uh, the other four, American Fiction, The Holdovers, Maestro and The Zone of Interest, I'm very keen to check out. So there's a whistle-stop tour through the uh, some of the categories of the Academy Awards. Um, obviously, there are various categories I haven't mentioned, and we will talk about those nearer the time, and doubtless we'll have an Oscar um, review show. But I'm curious to know, gentlemen, what are your thoughts um, on, the nom on the nominees? How many of them have you seen? And which ones are you particularly keen to see before the awards are presented on the 10th of March? Um, so regarding the Best Picture with, uh, nominees, I've actually seen seven of them. Funny enough, I went to a, a Odeon, they do a s secret screening, um, a semi at a not regular basis, um, infrequent basis. And this it's aired the day before the Oscar nominations, and it happened to be American Fiction, which was well-timed. And I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised it got in with nominations especially because i thought it was quite a good film and as sterling k brown was one that surprised me um i thought his performance was gr brilliant um and every oscar season there always seems to be a couple surprise nominations which they just get announced and you're like whoa where did that come from and this year from reactions it appears that status was filled by the nominations for Nyad uh, for Jodie Foster and Annette Benning, which I can't comment on the quality of the, the film or the performances, but it felt very much like the um, uh, the Kathy Bates for Richard Jewell nomination or the Nightmare Alley for Best Picture, where it's just like, that's out, out of the blue, but okay. And I'm, I think this is a pretty, from what I've seen, it's a pretty strong lineup of best picture nominations. I haven't seen Maestro. I haven't seen uh, the Zone of Interest, and I haven't seen the Holdovers. But I am keen to fill those um, blank spots. Uh, yes, 
Maestro's on Netflix, Holdovers and Cinemas, Zone of Interest. I believe it's out February 2nd, so I'll be looking to fill those. I'm a bit sad that Charles Melton did not get a supporting actor nomination for May, December, because I thought he was a absolutely astounding performance um, in that, that film. And, well, there's always one where you're like a bit sad it never got nominated. But I must admit, the whole Margot Rob- Robbie, Greta Gerwig thing got very surreal today when Hillary Clinton put a post up to weigh in about this whole them two being overlooked. Yeah, I just have nothing more to say about that then. That was surreal. Um, do, What about you, Russell? Uh, yeah, the, I, I lost interest in the entire conversation around this supposed snub of a film that has eight nominations. That's this, I can't get too wrapped up in it when Hillary Clinton is tweeting and Instagramming about it because I, there are a finite number of places on in nominations and it's at the end of the day, it's all politics and it's who runs the best campaign to get there. I, one of my more interesting observations to me is that Netflix has clearly worked a way to get nominations for acting, which is to make rather mediocre biopics with beloved actors. So it's why we've got Maestro, Rustin and Nyad. And I've seen all of those and didn't really care for any of them. Um, but I applaud Netflix for working out how to get 20% of the um, body on your side. In terms of nominations as a whole, I think they're fine. I I have seen eight of the 10 up for best picture. I haven't seen American Fiction or The Zone of Interest yet. I will be seeing those within the next week or two. There's films in there that I love, like I love The Holdovers. I genuinely, so I saw that the weekend and I was in love of it. Uh, obviously, I've talked at length about Oppenheimer and Barbie. We'll get into poor things. But yeah, I don't think there's a film in there that I don't appreciate. I don't love Maestro. I think Maestro is... I, I just think Maestro is a kind of Oscar film that doesn't really do it for me. In terms of acting, there's some surprises in there. I am very happy that Mark Ruffalo is up for poor things because it is perhaps my favorite performance from him uh there's actors i love that have missed out which i'm sad about i'm sad about glenn howerton not getting in for blackberry but as i said there's a finite number of spaces on all these categories and i will just celebrate as vincent did that uh nimona <laughs> is up for best animated feature nimona is glorious and that godzilla minus one is up for best uh v- vfx which is done by a very small team on a very small budget and it looks incredible so if there is a deserving nominee there that's it and in general i'm just as of all this just happy to see where this goes i'm curious to see if this barbie backlash is going to do an argo in that it will lead to barbie being the best picture winner because of some perceived snub and in this case it's director and actor so director and actress, whereas last time it was just director. So I, I don't know. It remains to be seen. Uh, yeah, I think there's some that I think are cer- almost certain to win. I think Nolan is probably going to get director. I think that I'm trying to remember her name. Uh, Devine Joy Randolph is probably going to get best supporting actress for the holdovers. Both do stellar work in their respective films. I think maybe Giometti might pip 
Murphy to best actor. Uh, yeah, and I, I think Downey Jr.'s going to win best supporting actor. Again, they're all doing amazing work. All these actors and directors and writers are doing amazing work. So, yeah. Oh, and the other one I'm kind of sad about is Across the Spider-Verse not getting best um, score just because it's such an incredible score that weaves mm. so effectively into that film. But again, you could talk endlessly about snubs and things missing out. And at the end of the day, just go watch the damn films. <laughs> go watch the films, appreciate the films, and there'll be another Oscar season in 12 months' time. So I'm just happy to see wh where this goes. I'm happy to see who wins. There are very few people in there that I'm like, I don't want you in there at all. In fact, there's no one, uh, even the ones who I think are in it for like, films i don't really love like uh i love annette, annette benning so i'm all happy annette benning to be another oscar nomination um coleman domingo is that his name yes he is a phenomenal actor and like, rustin isn't great but he is a phenomenal actor so having him in the mix is is terrific um yeah it's oscars you love it and you hate it <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we love and hate talking well we love, we love and hate it, but we do, I think we also very much enjoy talking about it and doing the eye rolling and, yeah, seeing the the responses like, you know, Hillary, I hadn't heard about Hillary Clinton's uh, comments, but that's probably because <laughs> Hillary Clinton doesn't particularly register on my radar. Um, it feels like the reality <laughs> machine is broken and we need to turn it on and off when something like that happens. It feels so weird and so disconnected like i i don't know why hillary clinton needs to comment on this i understand you know, could have been president once but i'm not sure why she has to comment on the fact that barbie hasn't received another two nominations to go along with its eight like i'm like what are you talking about and like this so like the other thing i'll say is like um america ferrara is a wonderful performer and was a surprise addition in that category, but a welcome surprise because she's a phenomenal performer and she gives a great performance mm. in Barbie. And she has the, so, spe the, yeah. the speech from Barbie that has been made yeah. so famous. Yeah, so mm -hmm. I, I'm not... Uh, this perceived snubbing doesn't quite get my blood boiling because Margot Robbie is nominated for an Oscar. She's up for Best Producer. Uh, Greta Gerwig is up for Best Screenplay. There are two acting nomina nominations for Barbie. Like, I can't in myself get, like, hopped up and hemmed up about this. There's other um, female directors I would love to have seen in the mix. I would love to have seen uh, Celine Song for Past Lives because mm -hmm. uh, while Past Lives is not... I'm not in love with it like people are. I can acknowledge that the work put in by that director is incredible. But there are five slots for Best Director. And thank God it's not an all-male lineup. Mm. <laughs> uh, indeed. Yeah, true. Was a risk. It's also worth noting, I think, uh, in the other, looking down to some of the other categories, yeah, Barbie is up for eight awards um, nominated, including some fairly uh, categories that make a lot of sense, like costume design and production design, two nominations for original song. I will say, one thing I am a bit disappointed by is that while um, I'm just Ken is nominated for original song peaches from the super mario brothers movie is not so we're not gonna get the kind of the sing-off between ryan gosling and jack black that i was holding out for so if there's anything i'm disappointed by with these <laughs> nominations it's i wanted jack black singing peaches 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 and breathe <clears throat> 
<laughs> One interesting thing that was pointed out um, on the BBC um, when they were doing the Oscar coverage is that um, for uh, the last time a film was won Best Picture and was not nominated for either of the screenplay nominate, uh, categories was back Titanic back in 1997. Since then, every Best Picture winner has had a screenplay nomination. And it's interesting that um, Killers of the Flower Moon didn't get a nomination in for screenplay. That is indeed very interesting. Yeah. Mm. And looking, especially looking at those which it did, because I remember there was some discussion about whether it was reasonable to for Barbie to be nominated in the adapted screenplay category rather than original. But rules mm-hmm. of the, um, the Academy being because Barbie is an established uh, IP that counts as a publication, I guess. That's why it was classed as an adapted screenplay. And the others, I think, are all based on um, books, Oppenheimer on yeah. the, I guess, biography and the other three on novels. Um, yeah, it's it's also the same rule for why um, Before Midnight got a Best Adapted Screenplay nomination because it's the third film and it's essentially a story adapting characters yeah. from... Same with um, Top Gun Maverick uh, was up for... Yes. Um, adapted screenplay on the, because it was a sequel. Um, so that may have something to do with it. Perhaps if Barbie had been classed as an original screenplay, then in that we would have seen Killers of the Flower Moon. But I think that's an interesting point, James. And mm-hmm. while on the one hand we can obviously speculate about what we think is likely to win, Killers of the Flower Moon is certainly the type of thing that could win. However, I also think it might be another instance of something that gets sort of left out completely, which... Wouldn't be the first time for a Scorsese film. I remember Gangs of mm. New York was up for like 10 awards, um, much like Killers of the Flower Moon, um, and walked away with nothing. So we shall mm. see. In If, if he it, hadn't... I mean, it's been quite fun seeing in, over the last decade, Robert Downey Jr. come... Sorry, not him. Robert De Niro coming back. It's two Roberts, how dare they? <laughs> we got these two... Look at that. You've got Robert, Robert and Ryan and Ruffalo up for supporting actor. Just for variety, let's have Sterling K. Brown win. Um, but yeah, seeing De Niro coming back and he is, I would say, the oldest of the um, nominees and supporting actor probably for the various award, nominees of Killers of the Flower Moon um, might be the most likely. Having said that, I take it back. I don't think Killers of the Flower Moon will walk away with nothing I do. I'm already predicting Lily Gladstone to win Best Actress. Um, mm. Any other predictions anyone's got? I mean, we've heard that. Do we all think Christopher Nolan's going to get directing? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I would be very surprised if Oppenheimer does not win Best Picture, also. Um, but I predict at least one of the acting categories is going to have a surprise winner. Like, it seems like the narrative is Killian Murphy, Lily Gladstone, Robert Downey Jr. and um, Divine Joy Randolph. But I predict there will be an upset in one of those because Angela Bassett last year especially was the front runner to win Best Supporting Actress. And then Jamie Lee Curtis won it. I would say that I think Robert Downey Jr. and Devine are both, I think, fairly solidly in place. I, I think those two are going to win. I do think it is 
fairly close between Gladstone and Emma Stone. Like, I think those two performers, it could go either way. And we're, we're going to talk about poor things in a minute. And then I do think it is sort of 50-50 between Cillian Murphy and Paul Giamatti. And having seen the holdovers and sort of that body of work that Giamatti has, if he does win, I wouldn't... I'll be very happy of that because it is a wonderful performance from a wonderful performer. I mean, I prefer Cillian Murphy's performance in Oppenheimer, but I do think that there should be space for the kind of performance Giamatti gives. Um, anything else that I think is certain... Not massively, like I would have said maybe across the Spider-Verse, but then I think the boy and the heron could be powered to a win because mm. it is Hayao Miyazaki's potentially last film. Depends on what time does in terms of <laughs> you talk, yeah, preservation. Anyway. Um, and I'm not sure if I do think Oppenheimer is going to get best film. I think it's it's all to play for in that regard. I do think that Barbie is attempting a Argo that they'll try it, that trying to take the uh controversy of an absence and powering into win i can't really see any other film though beating i do think it's a barbenheimer fight there uh but yeah no i i do think nolan is probably going to lift up the statue richly deserved because i've always liked nolan as a director but i think there's something in oppenheimer for me that is a bit richer and a bit more uh his style has matured with Oppenheimer. He's allowed emotion in, in a way that he kind of, I think there are, there's emotion in his films, but it's, it's for me, feels like the films sometimes fight the emotionality of his works. Whereas in Oppenheimer, I think it's there front and center. The resonance and emotional impact of that film is there intentionally. So, and that I think is a development for Nolan that I most admire about Oppenheimer. It's taking his sort of, almost maximalist it's Coldman maximalist style and then laying in an emotional impact and necessity to his work yeah waffling on to say I think no one's probably going to mm-hmm. win I can tell by your faces that many of you are shocked at the outcome I on the other hand am not because I have had the misfortune of teaching you this semester and even with my ocular limitations I witness firsthand your glazed, uncomprehending expressions. Sir, I don't understand. That's glaringly apparent. No, it's... Uh, I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can. I'm supposed to go to Cornell. Unlikely. Well, as you say, um, you know, we, can, we can talk about the uh, styles of the different directors, but of all of the nominees... Okay, as I say, I've actually I've seen the the least um, of them out of us, but I would be very surprised if any of them make me go, "What the fuck?" More than the subject of our review. What do you think? Um. Yeah, that's a pretty good description of our film we're reviewing, which is. Which is Yorgos Lanthimos's latest film, Poor Things. Now, Yorgos, Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos, he's been on people's radars ever since 2009's Dogtooth. That's a film which he made a splash with. It's he was considered an exciting voice of, in cinema since then, and 
it just resulted in accolades and award nominations for his disturbing and absurdist works, which have come about since then. And you know what? That hasn't changed for his latest film, which is an adaptation of Alastair Gray's 1992 novel of the same name. Um, so the basic premise is that uh, it follows Bella Baxter, who played by Emma Stone, who is a woman that is resurrected after having committed suicide. And she's resurrected by this scarred and unorthodox scientist, Dr. Godwin Baxter, as played by Willem Dafoe. And Bella, Bella refers to him as God, both as an abbreviation of his name and, well, he gave Bella life, so he is her God in a way. And what we see from Bella is that she's initially naive, but... She's growing as a person and she has an eagerness to learn more about the outside world. But that clashes with Godwin's desire to keep Bella safe. And that's why we've got Bella's world appears black and white as she feels miserable in her constraints. But then Bella rebels as she run away. She runs away with this slick lawyer, Duncan Wedderburn as played by Mark Ruffalo. And Bella goes on this journey, spanning continents, and she gets such vivid colour in her life, and goes on this adventure of liberation, understanding and sexual freedom within the constraints of late Victorian society. Now, I have already spoken about this film twice before on this podcast, so I'll try not to repeat myself or go on a bit, but I just think this is a stunning piece of work. I'll repeat it again. It feels like the weird cross of Frankenstein and My Fair Lady. For and what we have is one woman's understanding of humanity through sexual experiences, which clashes with the prudish sensibilities of polite society. And at the centre of it, we got a phenomenal performance from Emma Stone as the rapidly developing lead, who just embraces life. Um, and discovers, as much as she discovers the dark underbelly of what's out there, she also discovers the joys and the ways things can be bettered. And she does it through what she calls furious jumping. And at the centre of it, you also have Defoe as this film's beating heart, Rami Youssef in, I believe, his first feature film. And I feel he makes a great performance as Max McCandles who's the assistant to Defoe's Godwin, and he falls for Bella. And But <laughs> Mark Ruffalo seriously steals this film for me. He's got a hilarious performance as the debauched lawyer, who's just, his ego keeps being shattered, and he's brought back down to earth after many claims of his own boasting about his own prowess. But really, he's a pathetic little man, and I'm I'm so glad Ruffalo got a nomination. I'm glad Emma Stone got a nomination. I'm glad Poor Things just got so many nominations. <laughs> it's a weird little film and I love it. Um, enough about me. What do you guys think of Poor Things? I saw Poor Things just uh, last week. And it was um, at a slightly annoying time because it was quite late in the day. And I was like, I'm so tired, but I'm going to give this a go anyway. And I'm so glad I did. Um, I think the way you described it, James, as disturbing and absurdist is absolutely right. Um, 
there were point because I remember this was only the second Lanthimos film I'd seen. I saw The Favourite uh, back in 2019. It was actually my top film of that year. Um, so I went into Poor Things with a certain amount of expectations and it exceeded them. Uh, there were points during the first act where I was like, you what now? That looks odd. Well, of course it is. You know, it's it's like it's Lantamos. You know, get rid of his chair. What the hell is that? <laughs> and it went up from there. And the funny thing is, it took a bit of time to relax into. I think there were there were points in the early stages where I thought, is this just being weird for the sake of being weird? But as things progressed, I was like, no, this is making a point. This is making a lot of ooh interesting points. And I think I would describe it as a. I think the film is gleefully committed to being bonkers um, and it's gloriously absurdist um, and it revels in its, it, it is a freak show in, a, in the best possible sense. But it's also, I think, an absolute cluster truth bomb um, to these, to so many societal nonsenses. It shows the nonsenses of patriarchy, of capitalism, of intellectualism and of taste and it manages to do so in a way that is so arch that it never feels as though Lantimos is saying haha aren't I clever and you and you're all that have these things that make you that you think you're clever and I and really I'm the clever one it, it's more a matter of you're highlighting that you're absurd and we're absurd and everything is absurd and I and I am here for it. And thank you that, to that. And the what the sort of the knowing artifice that's going on. And you, there were points where like, when it, when is this set? I, I think it's kind of Victorian era. But where is it? Okay, mentioned it's London, and it's notable that the four main characters are all. I think they're all American. Certainly, Stone, Defoe, and Ruffalo are. But they're playing Brits, um, in effect, and. Yeah, and that adds to it, and this is very much on sets. There is nothing here that appears natural, and in doing so, I think it demonstrates the lack of nature, the inherent artifice in so much. And yeah, I could wax lyrical about poor things <laughs> uh, as well. I yeah, it's one of the it was the first like new release I saw this year, and I would be very surprised if it doesn't end up in my top movies of the year. And yeah, I am similarly delighted that the Academy have looked upon it and gone like, you know what? We love this freak show. We're gonna, and we love it in this respect, in this respect, in this respect. And yeah, it's been showered with um, awards attention and that makes me very happy. Russell, what do you think? Um, a, hurrah for the return of horny cinema. I'm always happy when there's horny <laughs> cinema and this film is rather horny at times. Uh, B, I, I had a strange experience of watching this and being uh, simultaneously enthralled and slightly disappointed by poor things. Um, I went in, there, there's been a lot of hype around it because of the festival run and just exuberant reviews. And I find myself slightly pulling away from it in that I think that it's um, probably my least favorite Lanfamos film because his other films make me feel stuff that I don't like. Like The Lobster is a deeply uncomfortable, very strange film. I have never been as tense as when I watched The Killer, the Killing of a Sacred Deer. That is a horrifically tense film, and I felt like I was having a heart attack. 
and I was elated by the favorite. The favorite is wickedly entertaining. Um, and this, I just, I enjoyed it, but I also felt a softening of a director for me that some of that spikiness that Lanthimos has isn't quite here. Like it, it, he's slightly too enraptured with Bella for my tastes, but there are three phenomenal performances here. I think Emma Stone is incredible. I think this is an incredible performance from Emma Stone. I mean, I think we all like Emma Stone. I think we all think she's a fantastic actor. She's already won an Oscar, deservedly so, and has very... I can't think of a bad performance from her, but here it's so much of her physicality. It's that it's her slow transformation. This is as much a not quite like a body comedy. Like, it's not a horror, but it's like that kind of sense in a body horror when someone is transforming physically in front of you and the way that emma stone's physicality changes subtly throughout this film is wonderful i think this is one of my favorite defoe performances because it kind of is a marriage of his um creepy otherness and the warmth he can bring to a film like there's a lot of the florida project here to his character there's that kind of warmth to it and I think that Ruffalo is wonderful here. It should do more comedy. It's great fun in this performance. I just was left a bit, I don't know. I, I kind of, maybe I think that the argument here isn't as strong as it is in other Lanthimos films. Maybe I think Lanthimos is such a good director and this just being very good as opposed to brilliant is something here. I do think that design-wise it is beautifully done and crafted it looks fantastic i'm not sure i needed the last act i think the last act is a repetition of the point being made that i didn't need uh but poor things is is great it's just not as good as i wanted it to be but that's that's on me um and i can understand why it is heavily nominated i can understand why it will probably take some form of award on oscar night i suspect it might sneak in in best actress because Emma Stone is so good here and it is such a um unencumbered performance from Emma Stone. She's she's not held back by anything here and it's wonderful to watch. So yeah, so I agree with you to a point, but I'm just slightly more reserved on poor things. If there was an award I think poor things That's is fair. most likely to get, I think it's probably hair and makeup and hairstyling. Not least for oh, cost- Defoe. And the costuming is also phenomenal. The costumes are beautiful. True. I mean, yeah. I, I, I've seen it online, the discussion, compare this to Barbie, and in a way it is similar to Barbie mm. <laughs> in that it is about a uh, created woman finding themselves. Um, and there's lots of interesting things in Poor Things. It's just, for a first watch, I was slightly disappointed, but that's because I have such a high pedestal for Lanthimos like he's become this director I now watch go you would do your own thing that's incredible and now I think he's slightly softened and become it's weird to say that I think that Poor Things is his most mainstream film but I think it is his most mainstream film when compared to maybe well, actually maybe the favourite's more mainstream I don't know I like that the favourite ends on an acidically bad like the, the taste of the favourite is bitter at the end whereas this it's joyful and i'm a bit like but i like the bitter taste i like the the kind of the dark chocolate to take the edge off things ew dark chocolate 
Dark chocolate has it. yeah, that's my Dark chocolate away. has its time and place. Um, <laughs> I made a very well received batch of uh, brownies this week, which had quite a lot of dark chocolate in them. Exactly. Ooh, maybe uh, that's maybe I need it salt. Maybe I need salt in my caramel. <laughs> and for me, this was mostly just caramel. <laughs> but again, I just I want to work into my lexicon the way that Mark Ruffalo says "ow." At one point, he gets hit by Bella and goes, oh, <laughs> and I want to work that in. And th- there's line readings here that is fantastic. And um, yeah, so I, I like this. I almost love it. Maybe it is the bit right at the end of the last 20 minutes that I just kind of was like, I don't need this last 20, 30 minutes. There's a thing that happens at a point and I can't, we shouldn't talk about it because it's a spoiler. But something happens, and I'm like, uh, I don't need the rest of this. I was happy at this point. Okay. I would agree that the last bit, but maybe not needed, it did feel a bit extraneous, but for me, it was worth it from where it ended up, (laughs) how that resolved itself. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I see what you mean. An extra act that potentially not did somewhat reiterate the points that had already been made, but then gave us a uh, rather glorious resolution. (laughs) These two are fighting and ideas are banging around in Bella's head and heart like lights in a storm. Oh. You're always reading now, Bella. You're losing some of your adorable way of speaking. I'm a changeable feast, as are all of we. Apparently, according to Emerson, disagreed with by Harry. Come, come, just come. You were in my son. So that's our discussion of poor things. Now we're going to move on to a feature which has a different kind of poor thing we should take pity on. Russell, share with us your feature. So, listeners, I have sad, devastating news. The DCEU has come to an end. After 10 (gasps) glorious years, 16 or so films, I mean 15, but a 16th because... We'll get into the complexity of the DCEU. After 16 or so films, it is over. From Man of Steel in 2013 to Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, one of four films released in 2023. And I've now watched all four of these films. And I think one of them is good. But we'll get into that. So from Man of Steel to Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, we've had 16 films and a lot of... A lot of columns, some money spent... And a lot of people's careers changed forever. So, after the relative success of Man of Steel in 2013, to give context to DCE, so that that was uh, Zack Snyder took on Superman and made a relatively okay punt. I quite enjoyed it. I particularly enjoy it when it's on uh, Krypton. Krypton? Is that the planet? Yes. Yeah, Krypton. And Russell Crowe is... Uh, flying on a dragon and that all stuff that all was all delightfully gonzo stuff and then it got a bit bogged down and being a bit morose and but had michael shannon in it anyway after man of steel made enough money to be considered a success warner brothers decided that they were going to have a shared universe they were going to try and catch up with the mcu and have a shared universe so in 2014 they held a press conference and announced 11 films those 11 films were Suicide Squad, Wonder Woman, Justice League Part 1, The Flash, 
Aquaman, Shazam, Justice League Part 2, Cyborg, Green Lantern Core, Man of Steel 2, and the Batman, but not the Batman we got. It was going to be a Batman that linked into the DCEU. As you might already have uh, indicated by what I've said there, we didn't get all those films. That's not quite what happened. What we did get instead, if I run through the films we've had, we have had Man of Steel in 2013. In 2016, we got Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice and Suicide Squad. In 2017, we got Wonder Woman and Justice League. In 2018, we got Aquaman. In 2019, we got Shazam! Exclamation mark. In 2020, we got Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn and Wonder Woman 1984. In 2021, we got Zack Snyder's Justice League, which we'll probably get onto the Snyderverse of it all, and The Suicide Squad, which is a sequel to Suicide Squad. In 2022, we got Black Adam. In 2022, we also got the announcement that the DCU was going to be uh, scrapped and replaced with the DCU, although they've only really now tentatively decided that it's actually scrapped. But again, we might talk about that, we might not. And then Last year, we got Shazam, Fury of the Gods, The Flash, Blue Beetle, and Aquaman, and The Lost Kingdom. I could run through all the numerous cancelled films there have been, and there have been maybe another two dozen films that have been cancelled, but we won't get into that. And we've had one TV show, which was Peacemaker, which is a sequel follow-up to uh, The Suicide Squad. (sighs) So... The DCEU has been a lot of films. Uh, several of them have flopped. Some of them have made money. Some of them have been critical hits. I don't. I would argue it's never quite coalesced into a successful whole in the way that the MCU has been for large stretches of its time. We can get into the MCU's current state, but for the most part, the phases of the MCU have been successful in a way that the DCEU phases have not been successful. I... <sighs> We could go for every film, we could reflect on that. I think it's best that we discuss sort of like what we think are the best films, what we think is our worst film each, what we think is like a sequence or two that really stands out for us. Really like when the DCU works, it's in like a sequence like this. And then I'd like you would like to pick a point when the wheels come off this cinematic universe. And we should say that this is probably the second most successful cinematic universe. Obviously the most successful one the one that started all of this studio attempts to create cinematic universes was the MCU, which has got 28 films. So what film are we up to? How many are we up to? I think it's 30 oh, now. Probably at least 30. Okay. We're up to 30 films and about 15 TV shows. It depends what we count as a TV show. There's that. Yes. The MCU is complicated. So that's the most successful. This is the second most successful. We've also got the MonsterVerse in Wonder Woman as well, which is Godzilla and Kong, which is relatively successful, has its own TV show, has not had a film flop. It's had some films underperform. We've got another one of those coming this year. We had Dark Universe, which was Universal's attempt at doing the Universal Monsters into a modern cinematic universe, which I think is two films. That is Dracula Untold, which I've never seen, and The Mummy, which I have seen and is dreadful. 2017's The Mummy, not the glorious 1989 The Mummy with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz. So, James, let's start Mm -hmm. bad. 
What is, in your mind, the worst DCEU film? Well, I have no problem picking my worst film of the DCEU, and that's 2016's Suicide Squad. I was going to say David Ayer's Suicide Squad, but as has been widely reported, the cut that was released was not David Ayer's cut. His original cut was more of a David Ayer film, dark, gritty, a bit more dour. And the the reported, reportedly the backlash to the trailer for Suicide Squad led to a bit of a scrambling from DC where they were trying to combat the, oh no, everyone's hating that our Snyder films are dour and joyless. Okay, let's turn Suicide Squad, let's re-edit Suicide Squad so it's a bit more jokey and has a fun soundtrack. Let's make it like what a Guardians Galaxy is. Surely that'll work, right? Nope. I mean, I just thought it was a dreadful excuse for... Just a dreadful excuse for a superhero film, for a comic book movie. It just felt like a film with an identity crisis. And, I mean, it gave us Margot Robbie as Harlequin, which I feel feel is one of the highlights of this DCEU. But it also gave us Jared Leto as the Joker. So, take the... (laughs) You know what? That's a perfect idea of having... A lovely pizza and putting poison on it. Um, I really hated Suicide Squad. It's still my worst of the DCEU. And you know what? I didn't like about half of them. So that takes some doing. Well done, DC. Okay. Vincent, what's your worst? Is it Suicide Squad? No, it isn't. I have never been a hater on Suicide Squad. I saw it back in 2016 and I thought it was quite fun. That's uh, I do appreciate the problems with it, um, and I do think that the Suicide Squad is a significant improvement. But I remain think uh, I haven't watched it since, but I remember I did enjoy Suicide Squad. Now my worst entry in the DC EU is also actually very easy. It is 2022's Black Adam, for the very simple reason that. It's really boring. Black Adam suffers from a problem I've I've mentioned previously with contemporary blockbusters that it is bewilderingly overwritten. It's like but what why is there so much stuff going on in a movie that could be so straightforward? Uh, you've got a super powerful individual who's wronged emerges and is you know annoyed and sort of wants to hurt people but yet he's all supposed to be a superhero he's a super anti-hero okay yeah we can work with that a super anti-hero can be interesting but there is so much guff going on in this and introducing the justice society of america here i'm like wait i'm sorry who are these people and you're just calling them in for reasons of what plot effectively it's also very stylistically incoherent uh, it has genre tropes left right and center and the annoying thing, and the re- well, <laughs> I say the annoying thing, and so many annoying things, it's got some potentially interesting themes to do with imperialism, to do with duty and regret. But I think these ideas are just squandered with the, some tired cliches and the, the bringing in of additional characters like this is comes to a fundamental lack of world building. 
Uh, it could have been a standalone film. It could have been fitted into the DCEU more coherently. It has a tantalising setup that led to absolutely fuck all. Um, missed an opportunity to have to tie in with Shazam. That could have been interesting, and well, and that had a knock-on effect elsewhere. And I suppose one could say it could be easily blamed on the on, on, on the ego of Dwayne Johnson being even bigger than his biceps. But I think that's a bit, you know, a bit simplistic and reductive. Um, I think there are a whole bunch of things wrong with Black Adam. And but fundamentally, I, re I repeat what I said, it commits the cardinal sin. It's boring. So, yeah, that is for me the I think that overall the DCEU, some of it is yay, some of it is meh and some of it is bleh. And Black Adam is the most bleh of the lot. Technical terms, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't feel like defending Black Adam. I I think I enjoy it when Dwayne Johnson isn't on the screen. I think I quite enjoy the the superhero team being set up because it's just it's quite simple. Uh, and I will I'm going to spoil the the big reveal at the end. They bring <laughs> so for. <sighs> There is a very long history to the DCU, the behind the scenes stuff of like the actors who kind of are in it and they're not in it. The actors who kind of fall out of favor, all this stuff, the creatives who get chewed up and spat up by this is just absurd. And for the longest time, Henry Carvel hadn't been Superman. Like after Justice League, he hadn't been Superman, uh, even to the point that in Shazam, the first one, there is a um, Superman cameo, but they don't show his head because it's clearly not Henry Carvel in the suit. Like he pops up at the end and it's a whole, it's, it's a lovely joke. I actually think it works really well that it, we don't see who he don't see his head anyway. And in this, uh, it was announced that Henry Carvel would be back as, as Superman. He pops up at the end credits. And then about a month after black Adam came back, it was announced that he was no longer Superman. So he'd come back. They convinced him to come back, put the suit on for approximately 20 seconds of a film. And then they ditched him. And it was like, it was the, it's, it's the incredible way that kind of Warner Brothers have kind of fumbled the entire DC franchise. Like they kind of spit out these performers in a way that I think is fairly abhorrent and I don't like. But my worst, and my worst is sort of worse in retrospect. Like when I first saw it, I was kind of okay with it in that it, it was coherently a film. But my worst is Justice League. And it, it's because I've then seen Zack Snyder's Justice League and for the many ills of the snyder bros i actually do think that Zack snyder's justice league is a good if somewhat unwieldy film like i think it's ridiculous to set up so many characters of such import in one film but it at least is a coherent whole that kind of is his vision and then you go back and you watch justice league again you go ah well now i see where all the cuts are now i see where like someone has come in with a studio mandate and cut round things and slice it all together. And it doesn't work once you've seen the sort of stretched out expanded version. So my worst is Justice League also because it just feels like a missed opportunity that this kind of uh, team up comes too early. They don't give space for these characters to grow and blossom. And it's particularly apparent in a two hour version that it doesn't work. And then all the behind the scenes stuff is just rancid and it's, it's, we'll get into the point the wheels come off the cinematic universe but you could pick any number of these like films where like the behind the scenes experience has been so rancidly terrible 
and this is one of them i just yeah i i look back on it now and i think it's very fairly incoherent as a film and like while i black adam is my second least favorite i can at least go well i quite like the pierce brosnan dr fate stuff and i quite like the other team members and i really am fucking bored when dwayne johnson's on the screen and while suicide squad is my third uh second my third least favorite i at least i'm like yeah by quite like jay courtney's boomerang i think he's a fun representation of an idiot and i think margot robbie is great in it and i can have fun with it but i don't think it's a good film but justice league i think is bad i think it's a bad film poorly made well not poorly made but poorly edited and put together and that that's why and it, it's all the point when me as a dc fan kind of loses it with this uh and let's go positive so james what is your what's what's a good sequencing what's a sequence that really stands out and you go this for me is a good sequence well i'm gonna pick a sequence from my favorite film in the dcu and that's the nomad La- no man's land sequence in wonder woman and it's just a point where the film's been really building up to it ever since diana has left her home she's been told like what she should and what she should not do she's been uh climatizing to this world which is rather sexist and dismisses her despite her knowledgeable knowledgeable feelings about um war and the stuff that she is aware of and just at this she's at this point she's not thinking about oh i can't do this she just wants to go out there and help people so she's just like no, screw you, I'm going to go do this. And it's a rousing and inspiring moment, and I think it's a powerful sequence which just perfectly captures Wonder Woman. And she's Wonder Woman is the last part of DC's trinity that had to get their own uh, feature film. There's Here's a shocker, there's been plenty of Batman and Superman films coming out across the years. Wonder Woman, this was her first film, and I think they bloody well killed it, and this moment just encapsulates what the film got right for me. So, that is my sequence of choice. And a a truly phenomenal sequence, like... Uh, I will pick a different sequence, but I do think that's probably my favourite sequence. If it's like the bit when it kind of the representation of a hero is most effective in that moment, mm-hmm. for me. like there's something. As I, I'm a DC fan because I quite like that they're gods and I quite like that they're not human, and it kind of separates them off. And they're not you know Saki individuals cracking wise in a suit. They're like they have powers and they're gods, and that's like the bit that represents it best for me. Uh, Vincent, what's your sequence? Mine would have been the same as well. So I think we both, we all have the same favourite sequence. It is the No Man's Land <laughs> sequence from Wonder Woman. And Wonder Woman is my top film of the DCEU as well. But as it's been discussed, I will pick another one. I will pick from my second favourite entry in the DCEU, which might surprise some people. Um, my second favourite um, is Man of Steel from 2013. Um, and the sequence that I'm going to highlight is the first flight 
the sequence in Man ah. of Steel when Clark Kent has found a scout ship from Krypton and has encountered the hologram of his father, Jor-El, and Clark learns that he is Kal-El, the last son of Krypton. And you know he learns the history of his planet and of the Kryptonian um, empire, I suppose, in effect. And he gets his new, his fancy suit. And there is this absolutely wonderful moment. He steps out of the ship. He's in the Arctic, of course. And he crouches down. He's got his fists pressed against the ice. And there's this sort of quivering, this vibration all around him. And then he shoots up into the sky with like a sonic boom. Um, and Hans Zimmer's score is rousing throughout this. Now, I know a lot of people have problems with Man of Steel. I think for those who are particularly fond of the um, original uh, four films, particularly uh, you know, the first one um, <clears throat> by Richard Donner with um, Christopher Reeve, have a particular idea of what Superman is and what Superman means. And many don't like the Zack Snyder version of Superman, who is this, you know, the grim, dark type. You know, you can't make a dark Superman. Well, sure, there are problems with doing that. But I think something that particular moment, that first flight instance of where uh, Kal-El takes to the air, um, and it's notable just after that, he sort of, he doesn't quite judge his flying correctly. He falls down. <laughs> he, he crash lands like, okay, the, the, I'll try that again. One of the things that I think I personally find most engaging and most exciting about superhero cinema in general is the representation of powers. How do you put superpowers on screen? And over the last you know, two and a bit, two decades and longer, we've seen superpowers be dramatized in ways that are engaging, that are striking, and that are, I think, best of all, immersive that allow the viewer to get a sense of how that might feel and the first flight from man of steel sequence provided that the tagline for the 1978 superman film was you'll believe a man can fly that first flight moment from man of steel was what let me think i was flying and for that i i applaud Zack snyder and hans zimmer and of course, the effects team for taking me on that ride with Henry Cavill. That's my standout sequence. First flight from Man of Steel. And we should put a clip in here of a bit from the, the, from the score, which is indeed called First Flight. I um, I saw a concert at the end of last year, which was Hans Zimmer and John Williams's music played by an orchestra, and they played that bit from Man of Steel, and it is uh, Hans Zimmer does a great deal of um, the work that I think for me kind of pulls together Man of Steel when it works for me is is Hans Zimmer's score doing great work as he always does, um, and I'll go for uh, something from. Birds of Prey. So uh, you've each chosen like scenes like 
gods being superhuman being above us almost whereas one of the one of the times i like the dceu is when it's sort of more ground level it's more like the the characters don't have superpowers so i'm going to go for a bit and birds of prey which is in the police station and harley quinn invades it to get a um an asset and then a lot of cocaine gets flung into the air and it gets very colorful and bright and exaggerated and it is a gloriously fun sequence that taps into hardy quinn's uh headspace but also you know the wonders of cocaine i say this having never had cocaine i can't comment if it's actually <laughs> wonderful but it's a good visual representation of what i assume cocaine is like and i will get into more on birds of prey in a sec but i do think birds of prey is is a glorious encapsulation of what could have been the dceu like there is this strand to the dceu which is that there are these kind of smaller individual stories being told within a world that has superpowered individuals and has outlandish figures in it i recently as in maybe yesterday or the day before finished my dceu watch by watching blue beetle and blue beetle is another great encapsulation of what it is to be in this world and to have sort of extraordinary powers thrust upon you something extraordinary thrust upon you and yet yeah, this this sequence of birds of prey is is great fun i could have picked there's a bit in shazam i love which is where shazam and mark strong's villains are having like a face-off and mark strong's villain is monologuing but he can't be heard because they're like four or five buildings apart and so it's like when the humor lands in the DCU, I like it. I, I feel that there is a world where the DCEU embraced color and joy and fun a bit more earlier on and kind of survived itself, survived its its rather painful birth. Uh, which leads nicely on to our top three films. We've we've kind of circled them. Uh, I, I suspect we will have the favorite, the same favorite. But James, what is your top three? From so, like third um, to I, second to first. Okay, my third place film <laughs> is J- James Gunn's The Suicide Squad, which I felt was well, very much Gunn doing right what um, DC previously butchered. And you know what? It's a good precursor for Gunn essentially coming over to take the reins from the corpse of the DCEU, so well done, Gun. Um, my second place uh, DCEU film is Shazam. I thought it was just uh, <laughs> just a wonderful little film, which is like big with super heroics. Um, and you know what? It's nice to go back to a time when Zachary Levi could just not be irritating. And my number one, as already discussed, is um, 2017's Wonder Woman, I think Patty Jenkins, it was 14 years in between her first film, Monster, and her second film, Wonder Woman. And I think she bloody well did great with that film. So, yeah, no, that's my top three. Vincent, how about you? What's your top three? Well, uh, nothing that we haven't already mentioned, because my number three is The Suicide Squad by James Gunn. And, yeah, I think... Uh, James, uh, everything you said about it, I agree with. As I've already mentioned, my second favourite is Man of Steel. 
you know, where the GCEU started and started so promisingly, if only the rest had been up to that standard. To correct myself, by the way, the track by Hans Zimmer is Flight. Um, that um, I'm going to go and listen to in a bit. And then number one, yeah, it's Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is wonderful in every way. And if there's another piece of music that always gets me going, it's... <laughs> If there was another sequence I'd highlight, it would be her, the introduction of that um, score, that, that motif, when she first appears as Wonder Woman in um, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice. Um, yeah, I think possibly Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman is the best thing in the entire DCEU. And you know, what we saw of her was glorious. Um, but yeah, those are my three. Uh, three, The Suicide Squad. Uh, two, Man of Steel. Number one, Wonder Woman. You're up, Russell. Uh, my number three is Birds of Prey. I do think it is a really fabulous time. Oh, yeah. And I will say that like in my top five are Shazam and the Suicide Squad. And it's just, I think Birds of Prey, I don't know, maybe it's the fact that I love Ian McGregor's villain in it. Maybe it's the fact that I think it's, for me, the most successful team-up film. Uh, maybe it's just the fact that I kind of expected it from James Gunn, like, James Gunn is an established force in superhero films, so I kind of expect the Suicide Squad to be great. And I rewatched it this week and had a cracking time with the Suicide Squad. I thought it was fabulous fun. Probably enjoyed it more a second time than when I saw it in cinema. But yeah, my third is Birds of Prey. My second is Zack Snyder's Justice League. And I think this is the point that the DCU should have ended. Like I think this is the full stop for me of the entire endeavor. And I I we haven't talked about the toxicity around the Snyder bros. And by this point, it just feels quite quaint and, and awful in that it was a whole Twitter thing. And Twitter is now basically dead and we've all sort of moved on. And Snyder has made two films with Netflix got kind a of third on the way. He's off doing his own thing. They've rebooted the whole DC universe. So it doesn't matter, but I do think there is something to me for me in Zack Snyder's um, justice league, as crazy an endeavor as I think it is to launch two or three superheroes in a film, as crazy as it is to slam all that lore in at us. I appreciate the craft, the style, the, the performances that come out. I do think Ben Affleck was a really good Batman. I really appreciate his Batman within sort of stuff that doesn't work. Like he is far too dark representation of Batman for me, but I appreciate that he is committed to it. And I, Always enjoyed Henry Carvel as Superman. I always thought he was a really good Superman. And I like the kind of idea that there is sort of this terrifying god out there in Darkseid. Yes, it is very Thanos, yes. And that's sort of within the comics that the two kind of exist as Marvel and DC's version of the same or a similar character. But I, So yeah, my second is, is Zack Snyder's Justice League and I wish the entire endeavor had ended there. And my favourite is, as it is with you two, Wonder Woman. I do think Wonder Woman is the most successful superhero film in this bunch. One of my favourite superhero films is Wonder Woman. I think it's a glorious character. Never quite captured as well after this point. I am a defender of 1984, but I don't think it quite captures what's here. And having seen her pop up in two of the 2023 films in uh, cameos, I mean, 
Never would you think it's inappropriate to play the Wonder Woman theme at a boy's funeral, but my God, did they do it in Shazam <laughs> 2 at one point. It's perplexing. <laughs> yeah, oh. but I think Wonder Woman is glorious. I think it's a great film and has some of my favorite sequences of the entire DCEU in it. Mm. I also love the probably first fight she has where she goes and decimates an entire camp of soldiers and there's a great shot of her sort of slamming someone out of a window with her shield and like she's following it and it became the poster art as well um yeah there there was so much potential in the dcu and it didn't work i also say if we were having tv shows peacemaker may have pipped birds of prey peacemaker is a fantastic tv show i'm not sure if it's coming back because of the whole reboot stuff but yeah peacemaker is i might i definitely prefer it to the suicide squad i definitely think it's like sort of james gunn slightly better in in the peacemaker tv show uh all that's left to do then is a fun little thing which is at what point do the wheels come off um you've got 16 films to choose from You've got many points. So there have been films that underperformed. There have been films that flopped. There's been films that have been reshot. There have been films that never came out. At what point, do, for you, does this universe collapse in itself or begin to collapse in itself? So, James, what point... It, and we can have the same point if we think the same point, but, James, what is the point mm. for you? Okay, so I think it's unavoidable that the whole Justice League debacle was... A considerable impact if DC were trying to um, course correct, considering Snyder's vision did not go the way they hoped. But I don't think that's the point where the DCU collapses. I think, I think there is like genuine interest. I mean, Aquaman. Let's not forget, cracked a billion worldwide, highest-grossing film of the DCU. Shazam was also a hit. Side note. The last DCEU film to make a profit was Shazam in 2019. Oh. Yeah, I mean, pandemic. Another another side boat to that side note. They would have saved money. They made a bigger loss by releasing the last four films than if they just scrapped them. That was how big a failure the last year was for DC. Like, if they'd Batgirled them... And we haven't even talked about Batgirl. We haven't even talked about the fact that they cancelled an entire film. But yeah, if they'd done that to, to those four films, they would have made um, not a. They they they'd have probably washed their face <laughs> in terms of money. Um. Yeah. So I do think. Yeah, we had all that, but there was some. I do think there was some genuine goodwill and some towards the DCU and some hope that with stuff like Zack Snyder's Justice League, I think did help a lot of people and the Suicide Squad was really well regarded. But for me, the points where it's just, that's it, the DCEU's dead is Black Adam because they put so much of their their chips down on Dwayne Johnson, bona fide A-lister action star, just leading this film setting up a brand new anti-hero and i mean they were clearly banking on henry cavill at the end and let's not forget dwayne johnson kept bigging it up leading into it by saying this film's going to change the hierarchy of power for the dc universe 
And you know what? He kind of was right because after this film, that's it. DCU scrapped. And then after that, we got the remaining four films just burnt off in across the whole year. I mean, they ha- let's not forget the Flash had people like Tom Cruise and Stephen King saying this is one of the greatest superhero films. <laughs> and look how that turned out. Hey, we've got Michael Keaton's Batman back. Like, and uh, we got Michael Shannon's Zod. Yay! And uh, and we got the Flash admitting to Wonder Woman. I don't, I've never had sex. I just know what it is. Uh, okay, so yours is Black Adam. Yes, I mean yes. After this tangent, yeah, Black Adam is my choice for that's it. The DCU is dead. <laughs> Vincent, what's yours? While I'd agree that Black Adam was the death knell, I think the actual, the, the, the wheels started to come off much earlier. The DCEU backed its, we're mixing up our metaphors here, backed itself into a corner in 2016 with Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. The, as we've said, the... DCEU was an attempt to emulate the success of the MCU. There are two key differences. One, the DCEU had no equivalent of Kevin Feige, so there was no central guiding hand. And maybe Warner Brothers have learned from that mistake, and that's why we've now got James Gunn is going to be like, and his uh, producing partner, whose name I can never remember, is the other overseer. You know, there's going. It looks like there's going to be like a series or tour for the upcoming DCU. But the other major difference is Marvel have always paced themselves. It took four years for us to get the first Avengers movie, which was the fifth film in the MCU. Whereas in the case of the DCEU. We're introduced to Superman with Man of Steel and then with Dawn of Justice, the... It was the second film. There wasn't another one in between, was there? No, no it was second film, yeah. yeah. So and then their second film, not only do, they, do we bring back Superman, we also introduce Batman and we introduce Wonder Woman and we have hints of the Flash, Cyborg and Aquaman and we've got... Lex, we're introduced to Lex Luthor being a villain, and then we cram in um, Doomsday at the very end. Now, I'm going to say, I like Batman vs Superman: Dawn of Justice. You know, I think it is a, I think it's actually quite an interesting film. I just wish it had been a few years later, if, uh, that we could have had Wonder Woman beforehand that we could have had had an introduction to what was at one point going to be the Batman um Ben Affleck I think at one point was going to direct I would have been up for that a Batman film directed by and starring Ben Affleck um to have had that come in next uh, there were and what's interesting is you look back at Man of Steel and there are the seeds for this um you look at it there's a point where um Superman crash and Zod crash into a satellite which is a, from Wayne Enterprises there's a point when they crash into a tanker that says Luther Enterprise, Luther Corp, Luke LexCorp. So the seeds were there. The seeds were there to have, you could have brought in, yeah, I think the Suicide Squad could have, come, sorry, Suicide Squad could have come in earlier as well. There could have been suggestions of some of the others so that 
Dawn of Justice and was actually there was something building up to it. But trying to do so much. It's a decent standalone film, but as part of an extended universe as the second film in a franchise, way too much, way too soon. It could have been three movies in its own right, and I wish it had been. Yeah, the DCEU stumbled very early. <laughs> the dawn of justice was the dawn of their demise. <laughs> I think you both make very persuasive arguments. Um, as I've just in myself been tickled to remember that there is a point when is it Batman f- hacks into LexCorp's laptop and then gets access to videos and evidence of the others, and they've all got logos. The logos of the superiors already there, and it's like, <laughs> um, but it's yeah, but it's that? Wonder Woman, Diana Prince, who's actually watching those videos. Right, Batman so already hacked yeah. into it. Right, I, I, and then, it's yes, been a while since I watched Batman vs Superman, and I, I, I broadly agree with you, Vincent. I don't know if I like it, but I admire Batman vs Superman. And when I watch it, I go, "Oh yeah, there is bits here that work." There's there's about half the film that really clicks for me. It is absurd that they didn't kind of lead in more. That they 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 had the cake far too early. Like they didn't lead in, and yeah, James Black Adam is it's the hype round black adam it's the talk it's the chat mm. and the film is mediocre like i have it's very boring and it's very mediocre and it doesn't work for me i will give batman v superman this uh, first i'll just say you know what you got good ideas snyder it's just the execution didn't land for me i'll say this no film has <laughs> no film moment has left more of an impression in my mind than the idea that I believe Holly Hunter is it who drinks a jar full of piss. <laughs> oh, that's so stupid. Um, yeah. Well, she doesn't drink um, it. She's presented with it, um, and she yeah. said, "Hey, it's peach water." She's like, "No, it isn't." <laughs> no, I remember it because she does actually absentmindedly. She's like in the middle of speaking. She takes a drink and she's like stops and has a look and it says grandma's peak oh right okay fair enough reference to yes um but my moment my the wheels come up for me with justice league and we'd already seen with uh david s suicide squad that this is a studio that is jittery and likes to interfere and uh, all the stories around Justice League, the use of a personal tragedy on the part of Zack Snyder to replace him with Josh Whedon is ghoulish. To not delay the film for a little bit to give it time to breathe is ridiculous. And it's at that point that I kind of just felt we should probably wash our hands of the whole endeavour because, again, as I've said, there's been a churn of talent through the DCEU, there have uh, no one has come off of this particularly unscathed, except for James Gunn. James Gunn has been given the keys to the entire universe. And I'm in, I'm very curious what he comes up with, and slightly concerned that the superhero bubble will have burst by the time we get it. Like, I, I do think the superhero bubble could burst at some point because last year was not a great year for superheroes, uh, and I could pick a later entry as kind of like this is where the wheels come off. But I think the wheels have already come off by the point that even with the successes, I think the successes are not part of the wider universe. I think they're just like individual films that kind of click and work. So like Wonder Woman 
no, Wonder Woman was before Justice League. So like Aquaman, I think was a colossal success because A, it's quite a fun film and B, it kind of timed itself really well. Like it was like uh, between Star Wars films, it came out at Christmas between the Star Wars films. So we were looking for an epic feeling film and that's why that worked. But yeah, the behind the scenes story of Justice League is so painful the wave of fan involvement that inspired is so exhausting they i i think it's the unforgivable moment and the the dc eu never regains itself never regains its composure it it proved to be for nothing because justice league made about 600 million dollars around the world and was considered a failure rightfully so because it, it it's your entire A game. Your entire A roster is there. And if that can't bring in an audience. Now, the thing to observe is that it doesn't matter how many of your characters you bring in now. That is not a big enough draw to get people in. It doesn't matter if you get, you know, Gumpy from that version of that comic or whatever here it is. If you own the characters, it doesn't matter to us. We're not going to be drawn in if, you know, like, I mean the Marvels brings in certain characters at the end. I haven't seen the Marvels, but I know that it does. And that did nothing to increase ticket sales. I, yeah, Justice League is the point when the things, the wheels come off of this entire endeavor. And we should have ended it there. We should just be like, no, go off, reset yourself, come back. We'll do it all again. Uh, which is a shame because yeah, as I say, there's enough stuff that comes after it. Like, my two of my three favorite films are after the Justice League. Yes, one is a version of Justice League, and there is room in this franchise for it to continue. But it's just at that point, it's set in that it's probably never going to get as high up in terms of box office and cultural impact that you want it to, and you're just going to burn through talent in a way that is incredible. Like not even Marvel did that. Marvel has never like burnt through talent in the same way. Yeah. Ah, anyway, that's that's the DCU. It is dead. We have the films, but I suspect Vincent has something in mind. Do you have something in mind? Vincent? I do, because as you say, the DCAU is now dead. And what happens when something dies? Well, it rots. And speaking of rots, let's have a quick <laughs> look at some Rotten Tomatoes scores for the DCEU. Now, this um, is a game we play sometimes. It's um, shamelessly stolen from the sequelizers where I will give my fellow potty people a few films to guess the Rotten Tomatoes critical score for. Rotten Tomatoes is not is a sort of um, amalgamation of critical scores. If something is over um, 60% of three stars or above, then it gets classed as fresh. All of which suggests if something gets classed as rotten, it's got to be pretty universally unliked. We're not going to do the entire DCEU, don't worry. We'd be here all night if we did that. I have picked three slightly random movies um, from the DCEU that I would like, that I, uh, I've got the Rotten Tomatoes scores for, and I'd like to see if you guys can get them right. So to start off with, I'll go through these in chronological order. What, please, is the Rotten Tomatoes score for Wonder Woman? Russell. Oh. Now, I know this was 
this is a critically uh, liked film a lot. Might be even really well liked. Oh, don't want to go super high. I'm going to say 92%. Russell is going with 92% for Wonder Woman. James, what do you reckon for Wonder Woman? Yes, I also feel it's um, really high, but which side of 92% do I think it's more on? Okay, I'm going to take a punt on 91%. James says 91% for Wonder Woman. Okay, next up, James, what do you think is the Rotten Tomatoes score for Shazam! Now, I think that one was also pretty well liked. Um, Shazam! Exclamation mark. I'm going to go for 86%. Okay. James reckons 86%. Russell, what do you reckon is the Rotten Tomatoes score for Shazam? Can't be higher than 86, can it? I mean, it's well liked, but it's also... I'm going to go 85 because I think it is under 86. So I don't know how far under. So I'm just going to save. Play it safe. I'm going to go safe. Okay. Yeah. All right then. And let's see if uh, we're in tune. James, what do you reckon mm-hmm. is the Rotten Tomatoes score for Black Adam? Oh. Um. Oh. I'm going to say for 36%. James reckons 36% for Black Adam. Russell, what do you reckon? I know this was not liked at all. I mean, for the right reasons, it's quite ropey. Um, but do I think it's above or below 36? Because like critics, when they really don't like the DCU, they're very happy to slate it. Like... That mm-hmm. was like from very early on. It was quite apparent that the critics did not like this endeavor. I'm going to go with thirty-five percent again. I'm going to. Go, what was James? James said thirty-six. Thirty-five. I'm going to go thirty-five because I think it's below James. I don't know how far below. Fair enough. Okay. Well, um, we have a. It's not a clean sweep, but obviously we have a clear winner. So Wonder Woman from uh, twenty seventeen. <clears throat> Russell said 92%. James said 91%. James, unfortunately, undershot himself because the actual score is 93% for Wonder Woman. Oh, so close. If only he had gone higher. (laughs) Oh, well. Then for Shazam from uh, 2019, Russell said 85%. James said 86%. And actually, Russell did much the same. Undershot because the score for Shazam is ninety percent. Oh, so very high. Really? Yeah. Oh. yeah. I wonder if that was largely down to um, critics thinking, like, "Oh my God, the DC EU has discovered its funny bone." <laughs> yeah. And then for Black Adam, which I believe is the. Uh, if it's not the lowest, it's certainly among them. Um, Russell said 35. James said 36. The actual score is 38% for Black Adam. Ooh. So uh, James is the overall winner there, getting slightly closer with both Shazam and Black Adam. Um, but yeah, there you go. It's a, it's a range in there. So from one type of... Sorry, Russell. 
Before we leave this, uh, I've just looked up the box office of the last year, 2023. Which do you think is the most, this is US box office, which do you think is the most successful and the least successful of your four films? So you've got Aquaman 2, The Flash, Blue Beetle and Shazam 2. Which of those, James, do you think is the most successful and the least successful? Right, I think my guess would be The Flash was the most successful. Surely all that marketing had to account for something. And least, I think Blue Beetle, as much as I think it was the best of those four, I think it was suffered from marketing and that. Vincent, what do you think? Um... Okay, so we're talking here about whether what well, the actual raw box office was rather than whether or not it made a profit, correct? Yeah, yeah. None of them made a profit. Okay, so none of them were profitable, which was the least. <laughs> yeah, but then it's question. Yeah, okay, sorry. Now I'm thinking about it too much in terms of. I would have thought just in terms of when it was released and being a successful and being a sequel, I think probably Aquaman and the Lo- and the Lost Kingdom was the most successful. And but I uh, think yeah probably I agree Blue Beetle would have been the least. Your lack of faith in Blue Beetle is devastating. Vincent was right that Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom is the most successful. Oh. Then it's the Flash, then it's Blue Beetle, and then it's oh. Shazam: Fury of the Gods. Okay. Oh, so the sequel thing didn't work for Shazam then? No, because I mean I, I Shazam I like a lot. I think it's a great film, but. The sequel feels like this strange experiment of how much Zachary... What's his name? Zachary Levi. I've tried to remember. Zachary Levi is too much Zachary <laughs> Like It feels like it's like, at what point have you seen him for too much, this film? Like, I didn't hate it. I thought it was perfectly fine. But yeah, he's in it a lot. <laughs> he's in it a lot. Oh, right. Let's leave the DCEU behind. Let's Let's... Let's excavate ourselves away from it. It'll it's going into the morgue, not the morgue, into the two, into the crypt, to not be seen ever again. But but and if it's going to be killed, there's only one thing that could stop it, that could that could prevent its death. Martha. Anyway, why did you say that name? Can I help you? Why yes, yes you can. I'm here to report a terrible crime. And what terrible crime is that? This one. We're going to pull us away from this terrible parody of, of, of a terrible moment. I mean, it was a poor choice. Anyway, so from one dead thing to a whole bunch of dead things, <laughs> James, you have picked what I think might be a spicy take on uh, Rodder's Reviews Rubbish. What is your pick this month? Right. Um, hear me out before you send me death threats on the social media, people. My rubbish is 2021's Ghostbusters Afterlife. Now, it's well known that Ghostbusters 3 never happened because Bill Murray was the holdout. He threw away the scripts. He just did not find anything that made him want to come back. And it makes sense that as we go through the legacy sequels throughout this era, this would be how audiences finally got a follow-up to this series that they've been, that the most diehard ones have been clambering on to have been asking for for decades, really. 
Now, this film sees a mother and her two children move to a small town into a farmhouse they inherited from their recently deceased grandfather, Egon Spengler. Yes, one of the Ghostbusters. Now, what unfolds is... feels in the vein of... Oh, yeah, Stranger Things. That was popular. Okay, so we'll get this actor, and we'll capitalise on that a bit. And you know what? That can work. You can get something good from that. I can't say I was ever engaged with this element. And that's because, for me, it felt like these aspects were ready to be pushed aside at the drop of a hat. Because, well, the original Ghostbusters have got to come in. Well the remaining ones and that's because for me this film feels in favor of, of keying up the nostalgia baiting references to something that people loved uh, from the past because they're anticipating audiences are going to clap like seals at seeing something they recognized from a film they watched in their childhood <clears throat> and sea lions i stand corrected sea lions I didn't expect that correction in this episode, I must admit. Um, bit thrown, but okay. Correct response um, is, thank you, you pedantic bastard. <laughs> thank you, for you pedantic prick. Alliteration. <laughs> um, to be honest, the only way this film could have been more reference-heavy is if Paul Rudd's character on his date with Carrie Coon's mother, if he brought a syringe of sedatives like Peter Ventman did in the original. Um, for me, this feels like a quote-unquote course correction for to appease to the people who were not in favor of Paul Feig's 2016 reboot a film that was more controversial than it really should have been this was promised as a film to be for the fans and you know what in a way that came true because this feature length evasion of the comedic elements in favour of law-heavy ghost busting, feels like what an obnoxious section of the fan base mistake the original film to be. In a way, I think this film reflects how people want the series to be treated seriously, while they avoid the jokes from the original about the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man being a sailor, so maybe he needs to get laid, or the scene of Dan Aykroyd dreaming about a ghost giving him a blowjob. You know, the kind of thing they... I don't think of... he's dreaming. I think it happens. Now, you want to talk about spicy takes? <laughs> okay. Um, I don't want to think about the logistics of that. Um, but I must say, the most disappointing thing about all this is the director, Jason Reitman. I've seen a lot of his films. I... I really like Up in the Air, Thank You for Smoking, Juno's great, Young Adult. I think he's a promising director, but there came a point when his output had struggles. More with critics, and but they're, and at the box office, but it feels like after a point, people were just wanting the Jason Reitman of old and not falling in love with his later outputs. This being his latest directorial gig feels like a safety net was given from his dad, Ivan Reitman, who was the late director of the first two Ghostbusters film and oversaw the expansion of the franchise. But Jason Reitman doesn't bring a skill and craft which he's shown in his previous works. It feels like he's a director for hire with that previously mentioned promise extinguished. I mean, 
it feels like he's brought on to a Star Wars film, only he's not being fired. And what we're left with is a dimly lit finale, which ends up being a tired retread of the original. And honestly, rounds it off with just a really ghoulish use of CGI. Honestly, for me, this is just a compelling argument for why Ghostbusters and Legacy sequels should just be buried. Let those ghosts die and lay to rest. Um, Russell, I believe you feel differently? No, no, I don't. Well, no, okay, cool. I, I don't mind this film. I do think that it doesn't get what a Ghostbusters film is, but I don't think any of the sequels quite understand how to do a sequel to Ghostbusters because they all want to like true reverence when, you know, it's just a dumb throwaway comedy about guides and ghosts and yeah but i was on letterboxd because i was like thank you for smoking as a jason reitman film it is you're right and i had an awful jump scare which is that it is the only film whose executive producer is elon motherfucking musk <laughs> elon musk is what? an executive producer on thank you for smoking oh i thought it was gonna okay no no not ghost stuff yeah. like, no, no, no. thank you for smoking was you know, good well was that 2005 2006 yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. eighteen years ago. So it was before yes. he became super. Yeah, so he was super annoying. Yeah, um, and yeah no, I think I think I think Ghostbusters Afterlife is fine as a film. I'm fine with it. I do think that the last act is a bit ghoulish. I do think when you're getting like where it ends up is a bit like we don't need this. Um, I'm not that interested in the sequel that's coming, Ghostbusters Frozen Empire. I think it is. Yeah, don't mm-hmm. I? But the yeah. One James A. Caster, isn't it? I mean, he's also James A. Caster's also in a film called Seize Her, I think it is, which has like a dozen like quite prominent British comedians in it, like Lily Alla Fope and uh, God, she's in Bridgerton and Derry Girls. Uh, Nicola Coughlin. She's in uh, it. Thank you. Oh. And uh, one of the sex education people. Anyway, I saw a trailer and it was very James A. Caster heavy. Yeah, so I like. I can understand why this would not appeal to you. I was kind of fine with it because I had very low expectations about it. I didn't see it in the cinema. I saw it on like a streaming service and I was like, this is fine. Three stars. I won't remember it. Uh, Vincent, how did you feel about this? You know, it was weird. When James mentioned to us that he was going to do this, um, I my immediate recollection is, God, yeah, that film's horrible. But that wasn't what I said at all the time so i had a look at my review um which i saw back in uh i I saw it uh back in 2021 in the cinema and i thought it was um smart and invent and i I wrote that it was smart and inventive as a kid's adventure and then it lurched clumsily into a tedious nostalgia fest so i think that's indicative of the way i reacted to it because i when it was being its own thing, when it was effectively being Stranger Things, that was fine. You know, I liked, I, I think I liked that aspect of it. But then when it said, right, references, more references, more references. I mean, it, I think it kind of starts from the point where Dan Aykroyd crops up and he's, has this look. So his character, Ray Stans, gets a phone call from a bunch of random kids and then he stays on the phone with them for ages. And I think, this is the most I've seen Dan Aykroyd on screen for decades. <laughs> Where's he been? What what drew him out? Um, um, yeah, it was 
it felt very strange. I know what you mean about the ghoulishness at the end. Did that, to me though, bringing in a bit of um, digital uh, trickery to give us Harold Ramis's Elon Spe Egon Spengler. <laughs> Elon? Egon? Ooh. <laughs> Interesting. Wasn't so much ghoulish as lame. It felt like sentimentality for sentimentality's sake. And the... Yeah, and by that point, the movie pretty much lost me anyway. Um, I don't have a particularly strong affection for Ghostbusters. I did. I used to really enjoy it. I loved the cartoon series in the 80s, the real Ghostbusters. The original movie scared the shit out of me when I saw it. Um, and I've gone back to revisit it, as well as Ghostbusters 2. And I think they're like, eh, yeah, okay. Some parts are funny. Some parts have not dated very well. And... While I think Ghostbusters 2016 miss, you know, wasn't particularly funny, at least it was trying to do something a bit different. Um, and we won't go into the whole, you know, amount of uh, troll, trollageddon, if you like, that affected mm -hmm. that movie. But if after the, uns the 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 lack of success of Ghostbusters 2016, this, you know, Ghostbusters Afterlife was an attempt to know give some further life to ghostbusters i feel that no this ghostbusters resurrection was perhaps not quite as stupid or painful but certainly wasn't any more interesting than halloween resurrection and i have very little interest in the upcoming frozen empire So maybe don't expect that as a review in a future episode. But maybe it'll be an probably RRR. not. <laughs> well, let's see how it goes. Indeed. <laughs> let's. Also, Sorry. Uh, no, it's just you mentioned Elon Musk being a producer on Thank You for Smoking. He's also a producer on a 2001 film directed by his sister, sister Tosca Musk. And then that took me down a rabbit hole where it turns out Tosca founded a streaming service or a company called Passion Flicks, which is essentially softcore porn adaptations of romance novels. And she's directed a lot of them. And you know what? That family is peculiar. Yeah, but I'm going to say it for her. Good for her, because that is... She's found a niche and she uh, she committed to it. And she, you know, produced something that's that would have an audience. Does it say um, that if that... Do we know if that service is still running? Um, apparently so. Oh, right. Well, well let I... me say. No, no, I'm not going to sign up for it. <laughs> I have enough streaming services <laughs> already. Thank you very much. Yeah, the latest one was released last year, so yeah, it's still going strong? Question mark. But it's going. I'm gonna wrench us away from this topic, wrenching us hard. <sighs> Let's have some recommendations. Oh, wrench so, me hard, Russell. Enough wrench of this. me hard. Enough of this. Calm down, Vincent. Right, as you have drawn attention to yourself, let's start with something old. Vincent, what is your something old this month? Certainly. Well, um, my something old is a classic. We have spoken already about uh, the Academy Awards this year, and the film I'm going to recommend is an Oscar winner from 1991, uh, not The Silence of the Lambs, <laughs> uh, but the film that picked up the Oscar that year for original screenplay 
original screenplay by Callie Curry for a film directed by Ridley Scott that stars Susan Sarandon, Gina Davis, Harvey Keitel, Michael Madsen, Christopher McDonald, Stephen Tobolowsky, and in his first major role, Brad Pitt. I am talking Thelma and Louise. Thelma and Louise is like a shorthand, I think, for girls movie. Um, it is perhaps the quintessential Ladies on the Lamb movie. To such an extent, it got as uh, it got the true sign of significant place in popular culture by being parodied on The Simpsons. And all of which could suggest, well, it's that the important thing about Thelma and Louise is that it is a film about two women and there's so few films like that, which is true. That is, the, if you like, the cultural uh, footprint of Thelma and Louise. But you know what? It's also a really enjoyable film. Uh, it's getting a new Criterion collection release and the new transfer looks stunning. Um, it comes with, as you'd expect, a plethora of extras. But the movie itself, it is gorgeous, it is lustrous, and as indicated, it is enduring. This is a road movie in the best possible sense. The road movie kind of works as an evolution um, of the Western. So I think from a genre perspective, it's very interesting to think of Thelma and Louise in terms of what it does with the American landscape, with some... Uh, shots of Monument Valley that would make John Ford proud and some aspects of Hans Zimmer, him again, Hans Zimmer's score that are reminiscent of Ennio Morricone. Um, it is a film about restriction. It is a film about defiance. It is a film about friendship. And it has very powerful messages that continue to resonate. Arguably, you know, the, the best performances that Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis ever gave. Um, both were actually Oscar nominated for it. It's a, a rare occasion when two performers from the same film are up for the same award, but it happened. Um, Sarandon would win a few years later for Dead Man Walking. But Thelma and Louise, even though you can very much place it as this is an early 90s film with things like the you know the fashion and the tech and the the, fa the fairly throwaway attitude towards smoking, uh, which always feels a um, bit dated nowadays. It's still I think one that endures and continues to resonate. Um, Thelma and Louise. If you have never seen it, please do. And if you haven't seen it in a while, as I hadn't prior to this recent rewatch, um, I hadn't seen it in well over a decade. Then I think revisit it. Um, it it's a classic for a reason and it thoroughly deserves that status. That's my recommendation of something old, Thelma and Louise, which I imagine you've both seen. Yeah. It's oh yeah, film. it's great. And also a great Simpsons parody episode exists. Absolutely. It, Marge on the lamb. <laughs> idea of Simpsons. Yeah. Uh, so to something new and I'm going to cheat and I'm going to recommend two and to give some context I signed up for Paramount Plus to do a free week trial because my partner isn't here so I've had more free time this week and unfortunately nothing I've watched on there that's new is getting a mention so what I went for instead was two comedies that I saw at the end of last year that were kind of catches up from films of that year the first is Nida Manzor's Polite Society 
which is about a martial artist enthusiast stunt woman in training, Rhea, who is setting out to stop her sister's impending marriage. She incorporates her friends. This is a glorious mix of uh, British comedy staples with martial art films cliches. It is very fast, very funny, uh, rich with various cultures, glorious performances. Uh, there's a lot of films that feel like they are unduly influenced by Edgar Wright's Shaun the Dead style. Like it became, it's become quite a staple in low budget British comedies to just do it like Edgar does it. And this doesn't do that. It has like a hint of that, but it does its own thing. Like the director brings in their own style and it's a glorious ride. This can be found on now TV or now as it's now known. The other one I will just shout out about is theater camp. So theater camp, let me just get it up on my app. Uh, it follows a summer theater camp in like the aftermath of the creator and the kind of person who runs this has a stroke, ends up in hospital and her sort of dipshit son, who is like this, like financial bro comes to run it and it's glorious. It's filmed like a mockumentary. So you get sort of interviews, you get uh, fly on the wall style footage has great performances that like the cast includes Ben Platt. It includes um, Molly Gordon and, my performer of last year, Io uh, Edibray. Is that how I say her name? Uh, maybe. I'm not sure. Anyway, she had a phenomenal 2023. She was in, in Across the Spider-Verse, Bottoms, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, This and The Bear. She had all five of those going on in one year. And she's in this and kind of steals her scenes. This is very funny. It's also very triggering for me because I went to university and lived with musical theatre people. And there's a lot of musical theatre people in this. And so I was like, nope, I remember this. This is how it felt. This is what it felt like to me being someone who isn't very good at musicals, doesn't really love them. This is the experience that I had. And it was a lot like this. So yeah, this is great. This is great fun. It is like just over 90 minutes long. It's quite tight and fun. And this is on Disney Plus. So if you want a a good comedy for these kind of long, cold, dark evenings. Watch Polite Society or Theatre Camp or both. That's my recommendation. I, and I Jane, didn't get around to Theatre Camp yet, though it is on my list. I did see Polite Society uh, right towards the end of the, uh, last year. And yeah, absolutely agree. It was delightfully enjoyable. And as a fan of um, the TV sh show in the 90s, gladiators to have which is back yes, which is back but have a little voice cameo from um gladiator champion um eunice huttart was a particular um 90s nostalgia hug i'll echo vincent's thoughts i have not yet seen theater camp i think it looks great so that's yeah. on the list and the list that will never go down apparently Indeed. and oh no it always builds we always build up exactly you take things out stuff mm. put on and polite society, great stuff. And I will say that as Vincent's brought up a TV show that is back on the BBC and is proving a hit, James, I think your SNAF, your Sewing Not a Film, might have a link in that it's also something that's on the BBC right now. Pot potentially. So, my Something Not a Film is The Traitors, the UK version, I should 
reiterate, because it's big and there's many versions across the world. So this is a reality series come game show that's set at a Scottish Scottish castle hosted by Claudia Winkleman. And it begins with 22 contestants who are known as the Faithfuls. And they all take part in physical challenges. And this is in order to grow a prize pot, which can end up with as much as £120,000 in there. So, yeah, they're playing for some pretty real money. And the prize pot will end up being split across whichever players are remaining by the end of the series. However, here's where things get a bit difficult for the Faithfuls. Within their contingent are a small group of contestants who are the titular traitors. And if even one traitor ends up at the end unidentified, then the traitors get all the money and the Faithfuls don't get a single penny of it. So that's going to be pretty gutting if they end up with £120,000. And as the show progresses, you have the Faithfuls trying to identify who the traitors are and vote them off each night. But at the end of the night, they also have the traitors deciding which player to quote-unquote kill off. So it becomes a <laughs> thrilling show because you've got unfolding duplicity, engineered lies, faulty reasonings, and at the centre of it, you've got people who are, let's say, getting a bit too invested in what is ultimately a game, and accusing each other of being backstabbing liars on national television. And it's like a game of Mafia or Werewolf brought to screen with tremendous theatricality. In this last season, they have pretty much just one game, physical challenge, which is set up to be like a very over-the-top funeral. And it is one of the <laughs> one of the most theatrical things I've seen on British telly in a while. And it's one of those shows where season one, the people taking part, they don't know what to expect. So they some curveballs can be thrown. And then when it comes back to season two, it's a question of can they recapture the magic? Um, what will they do about these surprising moments? And they subvert it in really interesting ways so that if you're obsessed with season one, you're going to be surprised by where it goes in season two. And I think this new series has eclipsed the previous one. It's honestly a far gripping show than you would think. And the last two episodes are airing tonight and tomorrow. And I have no idea what's going to happen because it's a show that loves to pull the rug from under your feet. And anybody interested, it's all available on BBC iPlayer and I'll confidently, confidently claim it as one of my favourite TV shows I've seen this year. So that's a hearty recommendation from me. Well then. Maybe I'll watch it at some point. I think it's been mostly spoiled by the internet for me, but I should watch a series of this. Uh, we're going to need to prioritise the remaining equipment for the musicals, which mm -hmm. means the straight plays are going to have to be acoustic, uh, which is actually how they do it on Broadway. Could I just cut you off? real quick um, it seems like you got a pretty good handle on this yeah. so i'm just gonna take understanding a word you're saying off my list and let you take it from here brother okay quick question though what's a straight play well, there there aren't musicals and then there are straight plays so then what would be a gay play like, i guess I'm, I'm, I'm a musical so there we have it we have recommended three films a tv show we discussed in depth 
the Oscars, the tragic loss of the DCU. We've positive, both positively about poor things and negatively about a Ghostbusters film. We've done a lot this month, guys. Well done. Round of mm, applause. Yes, yes. Well done, us. Well done, us. Good show, good show. And it leaves us all <laughs> to say where you can find us. So, James, if I wanted your help in experimenting on a woman who has the brain of a newborn baby, where would I find you? Um, If you want me to help with that, don't come to me, you sick freak. But if you do want to come to me for less awful reasons, then I can be found on social medias at RoddersJ04. That's spelled with two Ds. My reviews are typically found at thereviewingrodders.co.uk. And I also write weekly at nerdly.co.uk. So come and check those out. Vincent, if I want to find you to lament the collapse of one of the few successful cinematic universes, where might I find you? You can, well, you can lament with me whenever you like, my friend. I will happily join you in the lamentations. And you can find me at Dr. Gain. That's D-R-G-A-I-N-E. That is my handle on Instagram, Letterboxd, Threads, X, if you must, and Blue Sky. You can also go to Vincent's Views, which is my blog for commentary and also links to my podcast appearances. And you can find my reviews at The Geek Show, Bloody Good Screen, and The Critical Movie Critics. Now, Russell, where should I send your invitation to the Academy Awards? Oh, I would love to get my address to get that. But you could probably message it to me on any number of platforms under Russ Loves Movies. That's where I am for everything. It's where I post any podcasts I'm on or any writing that I write. I haven't done any guest podcasting for a month. I did some over Christmas. And you can find my own podcast, which is not just for kids, which is coming back probably in about a week's time at time recording by the time this goes out it'll be like three or four days with a uh, raft of episodes covering 2023 animated films and james will be coming on to talk about nimona and teenage mutant ninja turtles mutant mayhem and vince will be coming on to talk about elemental and there'll be a few other episodes in the works is it just me or did i draw the short straw on that on that combo <laughs> I mean, there's also I've got Chicken Run two, I've got The Boy and the Heron, and I've got Puss in Boots two. Yes, I did draw so the short straw. <laughs> you could cover Wish if you want. I mean, I don't think me talking for forty five minutes about how much I didn't like that film is going to be good listening. It might be good listening. Anyway, that's what I've got coming up. Um, as ever, thank you so much for coming on to our show to listen to us. We hope that you have gotten over your disappointment about Barbie and will go off and watch all those fabulous Oscar films. I heartily recommend The Holdovers. It was, it's a bit of a hug of a film. It's very much a 70s sort of bittersweet comedy. I had a great time with it. But yeah, until next time, we've been the Potty People and we hope you stay safe, stay fabulous, and most of all, watch a lot of films and TV. And I am not a traitor. Maybe I am. (gasps) 